morning church. Um, again, it's a privilege to be um, able to come and share the word with you today. I'm grateful um, and thank you for the prayers. Thank you for those who, um, again, are waiting to see, you know, what the Lord will say. I pray that your, your week has been a good week, a flourishing week, and the week ahead will be one in which you will continue to flourish as well. And I just want to, before I kind of jump into the text today, um, and, and obviously say whatever I need to be, what I believe needs to be said, and indeed what the Lord needs to be said, um, I just want to, you know what, we can get to the end of letters and we start to see those things where names come up and um, we see the tone um, start to slow down and we can almost, again, sign out, you know, and We've, especially with this particular text, you know, the last chapter, we've been in the heights of resurrection theology, you know, the great significance of, of Christ and, and, and big things and great things to come. And then all of a sudden, we, we come down to the mundane matters, the practical matters of everyday life. And all of a sudden now, we might just start to think, yeah, we can kind of cruise through the next couple of weeks. My prayer is that you hold on in there. Hold on in there, and for this week and next week, let us get the full benefit of what 1 Corinthians 6 has to teach us about growing up. Let's hold on in there and, and, and just say, you know, I'm not going to sign out. I'm going to, like I believe here, that what Paul is doing is showing that how the lofty theology the great expectations of, of good things to come, even a resurrected body, a, a, new earth, a new heaven, a new earth, we now need to see how that looks in practical life. Our text today is 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. Again, it's, not, it's only four verses, but I believe there's a lot in there that we can indeed walk away with and say, actually, I can see how Paul is now grounding this lofty theology into something that will be um, practical and, and demonstrable of that which God is doing through us, even in um, the simple act of giving. Let me read, and then I will pray, and I'll be reading from the ESV, please follow me, whatever version you have. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Father, we're so thankful that, again, you have seen us through trying times, even difficult times, Lord God, and we are thankful there, Lord Father, that um, even as we go through this, there, Lord God, you are indeed going, you're in the boat with us, Lord, and you could stand up at any moment and, and, and bring the storms, there, Lord Father, to cease. Bring them, to, bring them to an end there, Lord God. But what you 
what we learn, Father, even from that passage in the Bible is that we should not panic because you're in the boat with us. And it's not that, Lord, only when we see everything calm and everything is peaceful that we should, again, rest assured that you're indeed with us. But even, Lord God, as we've been thrown about, even when we think that life is on, its ed- or is on a knife edge, that we are, being, we are comfortable in you. We are rest assured in you, Lord God. And I pray, Father, for all of us, wherever we may be, that we will um, find ourselves um, in that assurance, Lord God, that you are in this with us. As we go through this text, Lord, you know, remind us of your good things. Mind us of the practical things, Lord God. May we not be lost, Lord God, in the mundane things, Lord God, that the, the Bible teaches us. But that, Lord, even in there, Lord Father, out is great theology, great the gospel outworking in us. So, Lord, everything we are doing is being powered by that gospel, is being, is being pushed along by the gospel itself. So, Lord, we are, we are thankful that um, we can keep ourselves plugged in and that we will learn, their Lord Father, great truths today in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, I think there are some practical things that we can learn even as we go through this text. And I want to kind of slowly work through it, walk through it. I want to kind of lessen the paces. I mean, there's, you know, even though, again, there can be controversy in some of the things that are even placed in here, I just want to see, I want us to see how the gospel comes through, even in the practical and the mundane things. Looking at verse 1, it's worth noting here, What's going on in the background? There's going to be a lot of text that I'm going to bring up because, again, I think when I'm dealing with um, such a short verse, I can kind of take a bit more time to paint what's going on in the background. So the first thing I want us to know is that, again, one of the reasons why we shouldn't switch off is that Paul is still addressing issues raised by the Corinthians in their own letter to him. That's why we said, now concerning. So in other words, what we've been seeing in particularly um, from verse um, from chapter 7 of this letter, that Paul is now being systematically addressing issues that they have raised to him. And he's going through them, and he's now obviously showing his, um, through his apostle authority, he is giving his verdict on some of these issues. And so, again, this is a great reason not to shut down, because now he is redressing an issue that they've said to him about the collection that he has obviously told them to do. So what's going on in the background? What was the need in which they seemingly were given to, as opposed to, was it just a general offering, as it were? Um, We don't see it in particular through the New Testament, the the whole idea of tithes, for example, being given. So what exactly is actually happening here? Well, this was a practical need that was being fulfilled. A practical need that, um, needed the work of all the church, even in particular um, the churches in Galatia, obviously which is modern-day Turkey, and um, Corinth, which is modern-day Greece. So if you look at Acts 11, it's worth noting, it's worth going through for those of you who are making notes, but if you look at Acts 11, 27 to 30, it says this, Now in those days... Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, 
And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined that everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So obviously this is much earlier on um, uh, in, in, in there because obviously Paul is still called Saul at this time. But nonetheless, this was an ongoing relief that Paul was giving to these believers. So what made it particularly? I mean, obviously, what you saw the prophet Agabus was saying there was that this was affecting the whole world. So why would Judea get the bulk of the money? If everybody was feeling it, if people in Greece were feeling it, if people in Turkey were feeling it, people in Africa were feeling it, well, why give to that? Well, one of the things we know about the early church was that, in particular, when Jews became Christians, that they were outside of the communities of the Jewish, the Jewish community. If you read the book of the, the letter of he, to, to the Hebrews, you kind of get the sense that many of them wanted to go back to Judaism simply because it was very hard to cope without the help of fellow Jews. And obviously, if you were there as a Christian and, and somebody who, who, who had been told that this group had been denounced and that anybody... You know, today, again, you have to, to see it within maybe in our own context that, you know, somebody, in a, for example, in a Muslim country decides that they're going to become a Christian, their family considers them dead. And they're disowned and they have no, they, they have no recourse to come to the community to ask for aid. And obviously, there is no welfare state. But again, because there was no welfare state, people r relied on the generosity of their family members. But if your family had disowned you, you really had no recourse to go back. And so it, it is reasonable to assume that those in Greece and those in Turkey, for example, didn't feel the burden of being outside of the community and not able to receive relief. Whereas the Jews within Judea probably did. We also see this demonstrated in Acts 5, where there was, a, where there was the coming together, especially those who are wealthy, giving something into the pot so that the church's well-being can be upkept. And, and this is something that's, that we should note, that ultimately, in the first century, offerings were given specifically just to keep people afloat, keep them alive. And obviously, we see that um, further outworked in Acts 7 with the appointment of um, deacons to make sure that people got that relief, people got the help that they needed. So there, was, so there is, again, a great reason as to why Judea needed this money. They needed to make sure that those who had no recourse to family help got the help that they needed. We also see a little bit further along that this was an agreement between the apostles themselves. That this wasn't, this wasn't merely kind of like a one-off thing that, that they had done, but it was just something that was ongoing, that was something that was purported to go on. And so, again, I, I want to read from Act, um, Galatians 2, um, verses 9 to 10. And again, worth noting for those who obviously want to make notes today. I said, when, and when James and Cephas and John 
who seemed to be pillars precede the grace that was given to me that they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. And we should go to the Gentiles and they, and, 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 and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. So it seems that even as they were going out, that they're going out to preach the gospel and obviously Paul on his missionary journeys to travel to those. And obviously James and, and Peter and, and John likewise traveled, but obviously specifically they were aiming themselves towards Jewish, the, the Jewish diaspora, those who were all out, um, out in the world, so to speak. But here, he particularly notes that they should also have this secondary thing in view, which is to take care of the poor. Now, many people will probably look at this and say, well, obviously this is about being charitable. And I would, in, in many ways, I would agree that there is definitely charitable work in view here. But I also want to see that there is maybe something more general about making sure that you go to the poor about this. And it's not merely that we should go and, um, as it were, set up soup kitchens and, and the like, but that there is something within the context, especially as I look at a few texts that I think are important for us, um, and also mentioning from James himself, because obviously this is a conversation between James, and Peter, and John, and Paul, that also it might be helpful if we look at the mentality of what was going on in those days. And one of the things that James mentions in his own letter was that we don't purely seek rich converts, people that will keep the, 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 the membership propped up. That in that sense, that we, we, we would spend more attention to certain people in, in our congregation because in a sense we have more to gain from them, seemingly so. That to some extent, the poor should not be marginalized, not merely because they need to be fed, but merely because they need the gospel. And they need to be seen as important. So I think that this is probably more of the general view of remembering the poor, of remembering that when you go to those places, seek out, go into the highways and the byways. And this, again, I think relates to the gospel. That many people will look at this and say, well, this is merely about making sure that we have a soup kitchen. Well, I think actually it's more than that. It's compelling people to come and take part in the kingdom of God. Because those are the people that we can overlook. And I, I think this is consistent. When we look at the gospel itself, we see this. Um, reading from, from Matthew eleven two to 6. And now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John. What you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We also see the same sequence referenced in Luke 7, 22. One of the earmarks of the gospel, of, of Jesus' gospel, was that the poor got the good news. And this obviously traces itself all the way back to Isaiah. 
that the marginalized, those who were normally overlooked, those who were seen outside of the, 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 the wealth, you know, because again, this theology had developed that, the head and not the tail had developed that, those who were poor were not spiritually rich. And that a gospel that focuses on the poor people was something that was important, that's something that should not be overlooked. And so for those who might just see soup kitchens and, 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 and food distribution as the only means in homeless outreach, that's not purely what it is. I think generally it's about making sure that these people are aware that the gospel is also for them. This doesn't mean that Paul and Peter and the, the apostles in general did not understand that charitable work would be conducted alongside the preaching of the gospel. Obviously, it does mean the whole idea of, you know, again, it's sometimes hard to hear the gospel over a rumbling belly. But at the same time, we have to look at the fact that the emphasis was to go out and to preach, to go out and bring people in. We see um, more evidence of this need and this particular collection that Paul was doing in, in, in Romans 15, 25 to 29. I'll, I'll read that to you as well. It said, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribute, contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I, cut, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness and the blessings of Christ. So we see, again, that was the fulfillment of this particular collection in, in Paul's ministry. But I want to bring you, again, also to your attention, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 7, which, again, I think is an important text about what the Lord is also doing amongst us in, in, in teaching us how we give and how we ought to give, the mentality that should be around our giving. Again, this is looking back a few chapters of which we've covered this year. And it says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. So you see that mention there of their extreme poverty. They were going through it too. That this famine, to some extent, and, and their lack of finances was also an issue there too. But they gave. And they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected. So in other words, from Paul's perspective, they did more than what he had expected them to do. But they gave themselves first. And this is what, these are the verses I want you to highlight because this is the theology of giving. This is why we give. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. 
and then by the will of God to us. If you miss that priority, if you're giving because the, the preacher gave such a great oratory gift and, and it seemed that their promises and, you know, that I will have my cut running over and all the rest of it. If, you, if you've given purely because you've been convinced by the preacher, then you have missed it. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Once you're the Lord's, everything in you, everything within your power is up for grabs. Everything is usable for him. But if we are giving merely because people have convinced us to give, then we are not gospel-centered. We are man-centered and are responding to men. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as we have started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul wants others to, to get caught up, and particularly the Corinthians, to get caught up in this act of grace, that they will know who they are in God, know that God, everything they have is, from, is, is literally the grace of God, is by the grace of God that they have it, and then give themselves to those people that God has appointed because they are already the Lord's. It's worth noting here that giving yourself to God through the gospel must be the impetus for charitable work. Gospel-centered charitable work. Or it will be just you doing what you can for the glory of you. Look at me giving. Or for the person you are helping. I'm, I'm helping you. You're, um, here's my pity to you. Or for the person who's asking you. But I didn't really want to give. But you know what? He gave such a great, you know, such a great message. I, I felt so convicted that I thought, you know what? Let me, let me maybe churn out something that I wasn't going to give it. But, you know, they made such a good argument. Who am I? Let's move on. On verse 2, it says now, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there will be no collection, collecting when I come. And so I want to make two points on this particular verse because, again, um, there, is, there are a couple of things that come out of here that are particularly strong. And, you know, from one verse, um, it's important that we kind of unpack some of it. I can't go into all of it, but I wish, you know, maybe, in, you know, um, in another time I would. So this text, along with two others, in particular Acts 27 and Revelation 1.10, um, have been noted as, as giving a, a, a context for first century Christians that the first day of the week, Sunday, had become an important day of the week for them. And to some denominations, this is controversial. But even though this doesn't say with all the bells and the whistles that we maybe would like to say that Sunday was this day of worship, this day that 
um, had become really significant, had, 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 had grown in its, in, in, its, in its importance within the first century. Yet at the same time, it's worth noting that it's been worth mentioning, at least in three places, that this day had some sort of importance to everybody. I read Acts 27 and, and, and Revelation 1.10 for you, and it says, Acts 27 says this, and on the first day of the week, when we have gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And obviously we, those of you familiar with Acts, will remember the young man falls out of the window and, and light night because he preaches, but he spends the whole day teaching. And so there is a, a, a mention of the first day of the week as a time where people broke bread together. The second instance is where John in Revelation 1.10 now says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is an implication towards the resurrection Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So again, John draws reference to the fact that he was on the Lord's day when he got the revelation from God. And for those, again, who, 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 who look at the text and, and look at the fact that what it does say is, is, is just as important as what it, you know, especially what it doesn't say, then the fact that they mention this particular day must be of some importance. We can't brush it under the carpet. Again, there are those in specific denominations and say that the, 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 the importance of Sunday only came through Constantine some 300 years after this, and that, that Sunday was something that was introduced through a Roman emperor who had nothing really to do with Christianity. But again, you've got to wrestle with the text. And says that at least from the context of what we see here, that Sunday had some significance for them way before Constantine came along. So for those who are inclined to read their understanding of Christianity purely from a Jewish inclination, I would advise that they look back to the last chapter again. The resurrection changed everything. The resurrection had such importance that it's easy to see how within the first century it had impacted even these Jewish believers. For Paul and the apostles, the resurrection had changed everything. It would be a mistake to look on the Jewishness of the apostles and assume that they would live purely within the scope of Moses' revelation. If you read your Gospels properly, Jesus is the greater Moses. If you read the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is the better Aaron. Matthew 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount, plays particular reference to this whole idea of the newness of the gospel through Jesus, the newness of the revelation through Jesus. There he is on this mountain, like Moses was on Sinai, re-engaging the people with the law of God. Showing them how through the years they have whittled it down into nothing. And Jesus was reinterpreting and bringing them the new revelation about what that law was. He was bringing the law to their hearts and not merely to their eyes. 
<coughs> you might say that Jesus was giving them new wine to be received in new wineskin. If you look at Matthew um, 9, 17 and Mark 2, 22, which references this whole idea of Jesus saying that you can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't pour people, pour stuff into this old idea that somehow Jew the Judaism of the time wasn't bankrupt. Jesus himself said, you need new wineskin in order to receive the things that I'm giving to you because if you put it into the old wineskin, when this, when this thing swells up in you, it will burst its banks. And when you read the letter to the Hebrews, you suddenly realize the danger of what he was talking about. When it swells up, when it demands more of you and it's stretching you and pushing you beyond the limits, all of a sudden now you realize you're in danger of losing what God was putting into you. And this is why the writer says, can you now be re-engaged with all of that and, and re-baptized and reaffirmed? You've got to receive it in the newness of what it, of what it represents, that born again status. So the resurrection of Christ is a big enough event to make it significant enough to change the way how they and we reorientate ourselves to God. And so when you, when you, when you put all this stuff together, when you put this alongside the gospel and, and, and through other parts of scripture, you suddenly realize that maybe these guys did make a big deal of Resurrection Sunday. And not just at Easter. Every Sunday they approached it with this whole idea, the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. Every Sunday reminded them that this was the new world to come. That it eclipsed all other days. And not because Sunday is significant and holy, like the Sabbath was made holy, but because it reminded them that there was a hope that even if they died, they will also be resurrected. So this is worth noting. And again, I, you know, like you said, there are those who try to rein their own controversy on this, but I, I think, like you said, they're going to have to battle with the text. I believe um, Don Carson has a great book on, on why Sunday has become significant. Um, so worth looking into if you want to look at this a little bit more. So let's go to the next principle that we see in this particular verse here. It says there is a, and I think there is a good principle to be extracted here. I believe it will benefit the giver and the gatherer. I believe the giver has to take more time to think through how and what they give. Rather than leaving it to the final moment and dipping your hands into your pocket, just as the offering receptacle reaches to you and whatever you kind of come out and then you just put it in because I think that this demonstrates a lack of thought and commitment to your worship for giving. What we see here is Paul thinking that you have to determine what you can give. To the gatherer, I think there's also something here as well for them to understand. 
it's advisable, as Paul is making himself, he's, he's stepping himself back to the whole idea that when I come, I want to kind of, I want to put you in remembrance of this. He says, when I come, all I, all I want to do is just receive, receive the gift. I don't want to make another announcement. He's not making a big announcement. He's not pouring out his heart that, you know, um, the gospel will not get done and, 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 and poor little orphans in Judea are not going to get fed if you don't do this. He doesn't do that. To the gatherers, it's, it, it's, it's, it's mentioned that they should respect the fact that what has been given to them through premeditation, and hopefully it is through premeditation, I thought this through, that I will not put more pressure on you or coerce you to give more than you've already determined to give. So for the gatherer, it's just basically to give the people the opportunity to receive for them to receive that which has already been determined by the congregation. And not for, as some <laughs> have no noted to do, not obviously not here, who have looked at that and have been given um, a, 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 an update on, on what the offering is from, from, from the, the lead usher and suddenly realizing we haven't reached our target. We are not running a telethon. You know, we're not supposed to be having some little chart up here, which is, which is my expectation. And, and the church building fund demands that we hit this target today. Leave that for children in need. Leave it for all those other charitable organizations who are, again, making their appeal fresh to their public. But for us in the church, we are supposed to give as the Lord allows us to give. As God premeditates in our hearts to give. So how do we work this out practically? Well, I think it may be a good idea to assess your finances on a regular basis. You know, sit down. It's a very practical thing. Again, remember, you know, we're in that, we've been in the lofty arts at heights of of Resurrection theology, now we're here, but it's the same thing. It's the same impetus to say, well, why am I reassessing my finances? Why am I writing out my outgoings and my incomings and whatnot? Because, again, you just want to see what you can give to God. It's the same thing. God is motivating you to do both. He's giving me the hope that even though I may not have, them, I may not have all the comforts in this world that I may like, I know that the world will come, and at the same time, I'm looking at my finances, and I'm saying, well, all right, okay, let's do this. Again, we do this here, you know. Sister Missy, she, she helps you with this practical stuff. You know, she has her blog. Go out there and do that. But do it. Reassess your finances. Look. See what you can give comfortably without the need to receive relief yourself. You know, that's the whole idea. There's no point giving on credit or giving beyond your means, you know, if you're going to be wanting it back somehow. Something you might want to say to maybe Anderson and Sapphira, you know, in Acts 5, who suddenly realize maybe we get caught up in the whole idea that everyone's giving and all of a sudden now, oh, man, maybe we'll hold a little something back. That's, I didn't think we were going to get that much for it. Yeah, let's just give that. 
you know, and then lie about it. Again, you know, something we don't do here, but again, sometimes, you know, how many people who have given more than they can just to be seen to be in a particular line that will give them some cred? You know, I'm going to stand in a hundred pound line just simply because they want to be seen. Again, something to be learned there about looking at our finances and assessing and again as you know the text implies just looking at our finances and seeing where we're at it's not a bad thing and again in the midst of the times we're living in maybe you've lost a job maybe you've um you know things are not as as good as they used to be maybe you need to sit down and reassess your financial commitment maybe you give less you know we're encouraging you to give but we also have to sit and look at the text and say what it has to say and it says maybe you have to Say, I have, to, I have to lower my gift this month. And maybe you have to do that. The Lord will provide. Praise the Lord. We will be all right. You know? For those of us who are flourishing, maybe, again, we look and we say, hey, I've got a bit more room here. It goes both ways. But you need to look and see where you're at. And you can't just go under the pressure that, well, you know, um, maybe things will, the whole church will fall apart because I've lost my job, but maybe I, I just keep on giving because then, you know, again, you've got that old uh, mentality in there that somehow, you know, you're, it's your seed, you know, and no, come, let's move on from that. Let's be practical. Let's use the resources that God has given. And, you know, again, we, there, is a, there, there, is a, there is theological impetus for that because I said, the Galatians gave upon their, their means on the basis of what they understood about the gospel. And maybe you will do that. And there is, a, there, is a, there is a place for radical giving. But let it be first rooted in the practicals of looking at our finances and gaining control over them. So, again, just something for us to, to think about. So, verse 3. So when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So, again, practical stuff. You know, we must not underplay the importance of having accredited persons in charge of our money. You know? I, I, I mean, <laughs> you know what this made me think of? I mean, there's a couple of texts I want to run off, the, the typical ones, but I, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, maybe, again, as a practical way of looking at this, maybe we need... You know, I, I, I studied the job with, um, like I said, working for the government. And I had to submit my, um, my financials. I had to submit my, my statements. And the, 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 the practical outworking of me submitting my, 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 my bank statements with them was to see if I was a person that was constantly in credit. And it's very simple because the reality is, is that working in the field with people where people can be bribed, was that if I didn't, if I looked like I was constantly in need of money, I would be considered to be corruptible. If they could see that, well, there's some, there's some months where Richard is a thousand pounds overdrawn and it seems to be going out and then all of a sudden somebody in a desperate position and I'm in a position of where I could possibly help them, say, I offer you a thousand pounds, I might listen to them more. Than if I'm constantly more in the in, in, in the black. 
I might feel corruptible. And, and maybe we ought to do that. Maybe we ought to say for those people who are there, submit your bank account statements. How many people who have embezzled money from the church might have been caught before they even got anywhere near that money? Brother, I, I, brother sister, I, I, I love you, and I, you look like a great brother and sister, but look, you're going to be handling money. Let's just see your finances, please. Let's just see where you're at. Prove to me that you're all right. Prove to me that you're uncorruptible. I mean, again, Jesus said that the people of this world are, are much wiser than the children of light. And sometimes, like you said, that's just asking those questions and rather than assuming that everyone that walks through that door somehow is glowing with the, with the Spirit of God like everybody else. And they may very well do, but again, we have moments of weakness, right? And sometimes maybe, again, like we, we put in good practice with the children's ministry, we're, we're getting our, our DBSs done and all the rest of it. Maybe we need to do the same sort of thing that people do in financial institutions and just looking to see if our people are corruptible. It says here that to present credit, accredited people. That's a word that we still use to this very day, accredited. So again, it, it can't do us any harm to maybe put that extra layer in there and say, let brother, sister prove that you're all right financially and that you won't dip your hand into the pot. Traditional references for, 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 for being this is, you know, 1 Timothy 3, um, 3, 3 and, um, and, and 8, verse 8. It says, um, in terms of appointing um, um, elders... Um, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Yeah. Verse 8, in, term, in, in now um, Paul now looking at deacons, he says, Likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And the same thing about money. Titus 1.7 says this, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So again, it's important to be able to give account of ourselves financially, to be accredited, to be able to say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worthy of this position. It doesn't obviously mean that we're, we, we, ne we will never have a problem, but it just means that at least there is something in the text here that helps us to say maybe we need to have that extra layer of protection and get people to prove where they are. Just like, again, in other jobs, people would have to prove that they're, they're, they're worthy of the trust given to them. There's also something here about the giving of money in person is something that we should not overlook. So, for example, there's not somebody just picking up the money, it's not just Paul picking up the money and then taking it to Jerusalem. For Jewish believers to be in contact with the Gentile believers was something that will enable both parties to be concretized in fellowship together. In other words, the, the, those people coming with the money, it was a case of being able to create a, a bond between the two communities. That there was a face behind that money. You know, sending prayers and goodwill to others overseas is a poor substitute for personal, hands-on, intercession, interaction, if that is an option. Give the money in person, if that's an option to you. And, and these people were prepared to travel 
from these churches to, as a part of the delegation to be a face to these. And I think this is the outworking of good theology. That this is not just the money from faceless people. So this was, so even though more people in the traveling party made for a greater security, it is nonetheless more important for Paul and the apostles that a connection be achieved between the local churches. In other words, what, what, when these people came and, and, they, and they came to Judea and they saw the need and they gave that money to the need, it was good for them to be on the ground to be able to see that. It was good for, for, for those Jews to, to kind of get to grasp of the theology that they were now part of the covenant people with Gentiles. And maybe for those who, who, who were having a hard time but establishing that, all of a sudden now they had good reason to start believing that God has really changed things. Here's my brother helping me. These are important things. This is, I, I believe, theology outworking itself in practical means. Not just for the means of security, but for the means of people seeing a face behind the giver. Verse 4. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Again, that's such a short verse, but so much is in there about the humility of the leader. You know, again, it must be noted that Paul sees the arrangements with money as being so important to the integrity of the ministry that he does not assume his role as an apostle gives him an entitlement to be involved in its administration. He wants them to, uh, to say, if it's okay, they can travel with me. But you decide that. So often people don't decide how and where the money goes, does it? Into some of these big ministries. Accountability is not transparent. And Paul here shows again, as I told you, this, these, first, these four verses are packed with stuff, great theology that is outworked, but because it's all in practicalities, we don't see it. That the integrity of the apostle is such that you determine how that gift is administered. Don't give it into some, some you know, behind the curtains and all of a sudden now, you don't even know what's happened. In fact, Paul is saying, no, you go behind the curtain. You go give to that need. You go to those people who am I pointing you to and let me come if you see fit. Important to know, isn't it? None of these guys are telling you, oh, we're going to do a ministry in India and da, da, da. They're not inviting you to come. You're not invited onto that jet. You're not invited to see how that money is going to go into there. Paul is saying, here's transparency at work. You go. You send it. You send your delegation. Get your accredited people together. You bring the money to the need. You hand it to the people. Make that connection. Be in fellowship with them. Let them see who, who is behind this gift. And you know what? If you feel like I, you, you want to travel with me, cool, you can come. You travel with me. 
There's no giving to somebody behind the curtain. Application. It's worth noting here that there is more at stake than a, than a seemingly casual arrangement. Because I said, all these things seem like, you know, yeah, it's the end of the letter and all the rest of it. But there is things, there is more going on behind the scenes than meets the eye. It's not just the fulfilling of a practical need, as good as that may be, but the working out of a robust theology, a strong theology. The Gentiles, as the outcasts, are helping the Jewish firstborn. If you, there's a degree of irony in this, in, 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 especially as you look at our own age. The Gentiles who are the outcasts, the, the prodigal son, you might say. And here the Jewish, the firstborn, the ones that stayed behind, those that were close to the Lord through so many years and the hardships. This may be a challenge for us today in the victimhood culture that we see nurtured around us, which encourages us as victims to be inactive to our would-be aggressors. That we, 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 we have to remain passive in the role and allow them to come to us and make the changes. Here, in the theology, in the, in, in the, in the theology of Paul, here is the outcast helping the firstborn. Those who know better sometimes have to be the ones who do better. I'm not waiting for those who we consider to be um, our aggressors to make the changes. Not more I could say there, but let me leave it at that. So these Jewish believers who were losing family because of their confession of Christ, however... They were the confession of Christ. However, now they are now gaining. When you see this delegation come, they're now seeing new brothers, new sisters coming into their family, coming and supporting them. Those aunts, those uncles, those mothers, those fathers, all those people that they would miss, they are now being coming back to them. And we see this as almost like the fulfillment of Scripture. Luke 18, 28 to 30. Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I believe that even as they were coming and seeing these people coming from all these parts of the world who would receive the gospel, they were seeing the fulfillment of this scripture and also have eternity to come. You see how that eternity, the resurrection, unites with the whole idea of seeing family come in Luke 18. What an amazing thing, isn't it? We might look and we go, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to switch off for 16. But again, Luke 18 just comes to powerful contrast here about people seeing family come as they give this gift and they say, here, here's for your relief. And they also have the resurrections come. They see family being restored to them. You know, we must be aware that many people, you know, in terms of our application, many people who commit themselves to charitable work do so without any reference to Christian doctrine or teaching. This may be a vain assumption on their part. In other words, they think they're doing it because 
of um, there are good humanitarians, but ultimately there is a Christian ethic there that, that even motivates them. But they assume it's from them. But nonetheless, their convictions, you know, but it is nonetheless their conviction that good works can flow from themselves. They think that this is them. I hope that as you commit yourself to doing good things, that you may also have an awareness of how the gospel compels you to do so. It is only when we see how the gospel is outworked in these tasks that we will be able to stick to them through thick and thin because of that foundation. You know? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A good work can be arduous to maintain. And of no fruitful value if it is not rooted in God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. In other words, it's not good enough to come. And again, there's a challenge here, I believe, for all of us to assume, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Even the, as we, we think about the things that we do to, from day to day, even as a church. We come and, you know, we have um, people committed to TLG. We have people committed to Barley Loaves. We have people committed to various other charitable works outside of the church and in various ways. And now good works. But do you see, is it, the, is it good theology that is motivating you to commit to these things? Do you see the gospel outworked in how you do these things? Do you see how that connection is being made, that this is something that you're doing because, again, I've given myself first to God. I'm going back to 1 Corinthians 8 now. They gave themselves first to God and then to us. Do you know what I mean? Are you giving, are you giving yourself directly to the work? Are you giving directly to God? And then through that, the gospel finds a way to connect you to these things. That's the challenge I leave with you today. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is the center of everything we have we've just spoken about here. The resurrection being so important, dear Lord God. So important, dear Lord Father, that it you know, we believe it has created us to, to focus on the Lord's day in such a way, dear Lord Father, that the resurrection matters because it has changed the whole course of history. Not just merely the fact that Christ died, but that fact. He has been resurrected to give us a hope, a living hope, that, Father, likewise, we will be resurrected with him, that we will have a new life in you, Lord. And this is the gospel, the good news. Not merely that we are forgiven, but that, Lord, Father, we are going to, we are going to experience your good in an eternal state, you know. For good to be good, it must be something that lasts and so many of us, dear Lord God, we have good days and we have, you know, and, and, and we have such good days that we, we can feel the, 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 the shimmers of glory on us. But yet, Lord God, it ends. So we look forward to the resurrection, dear Lord Father, where there will be no end to those good days, those good fellowships, 
We don't wake up the Lord, as it were, on the wrong side of the bed anymore, where every day is, is, is a blessing, and there will be no night there even, dear Lord. Nothing to wake up to, dear Lord God. No new, you know, bed aches. But the blessing, dear Lord God, of, of seeing your good eternally performed before us. We thank you for that, Lord God, and we thank you for the practicalities of what that does, even for us, as we live towards that moment, dear Lord God, as we as we do the things that we do, as we give, dear Lord God, as we give credence, dear Lord God, to, to a, a, a day, dear Lord, of worship even, where we just acknowledge you and say, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for that, Lord God. Help us as we, 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 we look to, to outwork this stuff in very practical ways, dear Lord Father. And I pray that for those of us who have, been, who, who have obviously gone through this Grow Up series, dear Lord Father, throughout this year, We'll, we'll not lose, dear Lord God, the, the, the weight of these chapters, dear Lord God, where that, those, that lofty theology comes all the way down to earth and says, now do this. Just give. Just be a blessing to your brothers and sisters. Acknowledge, dear Lord, you know, that you, you know, what you are doing, even in the mundane things in life. And that, Father, you, you, you are indeed involved in it. So, Lord, even as we do this, we, we take up that challenge, dear Lord God, to, to say... Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I go to work? Why do I do this? Why do I commit to anything, dear Lord? Because, Lord, because of who you are. Because of the resurrection. Because of the great hope that I have. Because, Lord, Father, you've given so much to me. And I want that grace to overflow to others. Lord, I pray that we will, we, we will see the gospel in all that we do. The good, the good work, that we, all that we do. And that, Father, we will not just commit to people, but we will give ourselves, as it were, to you. And even in doing so, dear Lord God, we can then give ourselves, as you, seem, as you see fit, to those, Lord, who may need us. In Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.